Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who, did, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heavens for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who, who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Anne Lamont is one of my favorite authors. I've mentioned her before, and she has a really great quote where she says, If God hates all the same people that you do, you can be sure you've created God in your own image. If God hates all the same people you do, you can be sure you've created God in your own image. And part of what that quote is attempting to get across is that oftentimes, especially people of religion, people who are associated with Christianity, when they read the Bible, they rarely will actually read the Bible. They actually bring out of the Bible what they want to bring out of the Bible, and they allow the Bible to go through their already established filters. And so it doesn't really change anything about the way they live or the way they think or the way they treat other people. One of the things that we're fond of talking about at Christchurch is the idea that really, if you're being changed and formed by the gospel, um, the Bible should be reading you more than you should be reading the Bible. The Bible should be forming and infiltrating the perhaps even unrecognized defenses that we all tend to set up in our hearts and in our minds that prevent us from seeing what God is really like, from seeing what the world is really like, and from seeing what we are really like. Now, as we've been going through Revelation, one thing, hopefully, that the Spirit has been doing week in and week out is through the Bible reading us showing us the truth about ourselves, showing us the truth about God. The Bible should be serving for us as a corrective. And that makes sense if we have real relationships with a real God. You know, if we want to have intellectual and emotional honesty in our reading of the Bible and in our search to, to know God, then there are times when the Bible and the pursuit of knowing God is going to make each of us uncomfortable. Are you okay with that? And that's just part of what it means to have a relationship with God. Sometimes you're going to read things that make you uncomfortable or that you don't like. That's not a bad sign. That actually in many ways is a good sign. It's a sign that the Bible is reading you perhaps more than you're reading the Bible. Now, revelation often makes us uncomfortable. And it's not because of all the weird symbolism, although that's a little weird and uncomfortable too. But it's mainly because a major theme in the book is the judgment of God. The judgment of God on the world and on people who refuse to subject themselves to God. And that is our topic this morning. That's what Revelation 15 and 16 are about. If you've been with us for a while, then you'll know that Revelation is structured as a series of cycles. Each cycle uses a different main image to tell us how God is working in the world between the first and second comings of Jesus and to prepare us for the second coming of Jesus. So we've seen seven seals. We've seen seven trumpets. And this morning we see seven bowls with seven plagues in them that seven angels pour out on the world. And so the bowls represent the next cycle in the book. Remember, John, the author of Revelation, who saw these visions given him by God, he is remixing his visions again and again. And the truth he is presenting for us is coming at us now in a different cycle. So the bowls of 15 and 16 recapitulate for us a very similar message that we saw with the seals and with the trumpets. 
But as we move forward in the book, each series of cycles gets more intense and more focused on the last judgment, on the end. And so in these chapters, the first five bowls are the temporal judgments of God on sin now, and the last two bowls likely represent the final judgment of God at the end of time when Jesus returns. And and listen, make no mistake about it, folks. It's hard to mistake it, actually, if you heard those chapters being read. These These chapters are about the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the anger of God. Not popular topics, uh, not likable topics. So maybe you should just take a minute and real quickly pray silently this morning that the Bible this morning would read us as the Spirit works and expose us more than we try to read it and question it. So let me summarize what I think we find in these two chapters like this. Here's the main idea. God will judge the world for its rebellion against him. So repent and believe the gospel. That's what is intended to be communicated to each of us this morning. God will judge the world for the rebellion against him, so repent and believe the gospel. And I want to break these chapters into three parts. First, the judgment of God is righteous. Second, we'll see that the judgment of God is deserved. Thirdly, the judgment of God is purposeful. So the judgment of God is righteous, it's deserved, and it's purposeful. Okay, so some of this is going to be hard. Some of this you're not going to like. Some of this might be offensive, but maybe that's a sign that the real God is trying to tell you something that to this point, perhaps you've been unwilling or unable to see. So let's jump in. The judgment of God is righteous. That's what we see in both of these chapters, really. That's the first theme. And when I say the judgment of God is righteous, I mean that God's judgment on the world is good and it is right and it is just and it is true. And we see that especially in the two songs of these chapters. Karen read for us in 15, the song of the saints. You see it there in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15. And the song of the angels in chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. These are pictures very clearly of worship, which as we've seen occupies much of Revelation. And the saints and the angels are worshiping God very evidently here because of his righteous and just judgment. Look at chapter 15. The saints cry out, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for your righteous acts have been revealed. Similarly, chapter 16, just are you, the angels cry out, O holy one, who is and who was, why? For you brought these judgments, just and true are your judgments. Another thing you'll notice is if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Older Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bibles, then perhaps the seven bowls rang some familiar notes in your head. They're very intentionally being used by John to reflect the plagues from the book of Exodus, that famous story of God delivering the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And if you'll look in verse 3 of chapter 15, you'll see that the saints sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. 
Now, that's referring to the song that Moses and the people of Israel sang together in Exodus chapter 15. You can read it. After God had parted the Red Sea and delivered them out of slavery and captivity and judged the Pharaoh and his armies by causing the sea to crash down around them. That's a clear song, if you go back and read it, of the judgment, the righteous, holy, pure, and good judgment of God upon those who oppose him and oppose his people. So John is clearly making very clear that God's judgment upon the world is a righteous, good, true, and fair judgment. If you're going to understand the Bible, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, One of the things that's impossible to ignore and that you ignore to your own peril, actually, intellectually and very practically, is that for God to make all things new in this world, he must execute judgment. Again and again and again, the scriptures in a multitude of ways relay that truth. In fact, the Bible actually teaches that God's righteous judgment, the sort of things that we're reading about in these chapters and that the angels and saints are praising God for, God's righteous judgment is actually an essential step in his righting the wrongs of this world, in his making the evil of this world go away. And in fact, the judgment of God, you must hear this if you really want to get what the real God is like, the judgment of God upon rebellion is actually an aspect of his mercy. It's not the opposite of his mercy. It's a function of his mercy. God's judgment of the world, in reality, is an overflow of his love for the world. Think about it like this. We've all seen a compass, right? Imagine the magnetic needle of a compass. The upper end of the needle consistently seeks north, correct? The North Pole. And at the same time, that same upper magnetic end is repelled from the South Pole. So it seeks the North Pole and is repelled from the South Pole. Now, there are not two separate magnetic forces at work, but one only. You see, the same magnetism that causes the working end of the needle to point north also causes it to point away from south. So it is with God. The same mercy that causes him to want to remake his broken world also causes him to want to remove what is destructive of this world. The theologian Fleming Rutledge writes this, to be for us, And for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed puts it, God must be against all that would threaten or destroy that purpose. The judgment of God is righteous judgment. It's good judgment. And it's actually a function of the goodness and mercy of God. That's one of the clear teachings of the Bible and of Revelation. And that's what we see first. Secondly, we see in these chapters that the judgment of God is deserved. That's another inescapable point. Look at chapter 16 with me, if you would. Verse 2, we see the first of the seven angels 
pours out his bowl on the earth, and it's particularly harmful towards the people who bore the mark of the beast, which we looked at last week, and worshipped its image. That is, those who are aligned with the beast, who wants to destroy and oppose God and deceive God's people. Those who worship that beast are the ones whom God opposes here, right? The third angel Seems that God is just in punishing evil and punishing evildoers because, verse 6, they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. The fourth angel, he pours out his bowl and people experience God's wrath. And in response, instead of repenting, we read that they cursed the name of God who had the power of his pl- these plagues. They did not repent, verse 9, and give him glory. And we see the same thing with the fifth angel in verse 11. They did not repent of their deeds. And then with the sixth angel, we see finally that towards the end of the age, people will assemble to battle against God. That's what's going on there in verse 14. They battle under the banner of the dragon, under the banner of the evil one. So just separate the forest from the trees with me for a minute here. What are all these images intending to teach us? Here's the idea. People are not innocent. People are not neutral. People either, and remember Revelation is pulling back, pulling back what is very complex and gray in our world so often and showing us the underlying black and white realities. People either serve and worship and orient their lives around God or they serve and worship and orient their lives around the dragon and his beasts. And part of what we must get is that serving and worshiping the beast really serving and worshiping anything that is not the one true and living God makes you morally culpable. It is wrong. It is wicked. It is evil. Okay, now, here we've got to make a jump. We've got to make a jump that's going to make us uncomfortable and potentially offend. And so let the Bible read you here. It is not just that people are not innocent. You are not innocent. And it is not just that people, all those people, right, are morally culpable. You are morally culpable. You are a rebel. You are a rebel against God, and therefore you and all other people by nature are born, natural born enemies of God's. And so all people by definition, by nature, fall under the judgment of God. We all deserve it. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, writes this. Because, and he's writing to religious people, by the way. He's writing to the evangelical Christian conservatives of his era. And here's what he says to them. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The hard truth of the scriptures is this. We are all hard-hearted. We are all impenitent. We all deserve the judgment of God to be poured out on us. Now, here's why that's hard. Because we don't think we deserve it. We think, actually, that oftentimes that it's all just a fantasy. And we think that because we are currently allowed by God to continue in our rebellion. But the scriptures tell us, Christianity historically has taught that 
what we're doing is just racking up debt against God as we persist in rebellion. We're like a kid who's a freshman in college that has a credit card for the first time and just goes nuts with the credit card. This isn't real money. I'll buy that lazy boy. I'll buy that big screen. I'll buy that Xbox. It's not going to matter. But every single debt is being accounted for. That's what the Bible says, folks. It's what the truth of Christianity must forces us to actually try to look at. All evil is being accounted for. Revelation is saying that God will not let the hearts of humans continue in their tyranny and treason without going unpunished. And I know because I'm feeling the same way and I've been feeling it this week. All of our tendencies at this point is to see these sorts of statements as overly severe or not really relevant to us. All of our tendencies right now is to think, yeah, I mess up sometimes, okay? Nobody's perfect. I have some holes in my life. I've made some mistakes. But no one, come on, deserves God's wrath. I mean, look at what's being said here. I don't deserve that. I'm not that bad. That's too much. That's what all of us want to think. And yet, as the Bible reads us, I think it's helpful to hear from former theologians and pastors who have written and spoken beautifully about these things. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He actually, he's a famous, by the way, 18th century American pastor and theologian. And he's making a point here in this quote. He's asking us really to consider how we treat God, like in and of ourselves, apart from God's grace. What do you think of God? Listen to what he says. I can't do better than this, so I'm just going to read this. If God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. You never have exercised the least degree of love to God. And therefore, it would be agreeable to your treatment of him if he should never express any love to you. You have no benevolence in your heart towards God. You have never rejoiced in God's happiness. If he had been miserable and that had been possible, you would have liked it as well as if he were happy. You would not have cared how miserable he was, nor mourned for it any more than you now do for the devil's being miserable. And why then should God be looked upon as obliged to take so much care for your happiness? You know, what Edwards is saying there is apart from the grace of God, none of us love God. None of us worship him with all of our hearts, soul, minds, and strengths. We couldn't care less if he does exist or doesn't exist. We couldn't care less if he's sitting on the throne of this universe or not. We don't think of him or serve him. We treat him as if he is a total irrelevance to our lives. Is it not fair for him to return the favor? We can also see the deservedness of our judgment, not just by the way we treat and think of God, but just by the way we treat other people. If you're going to be honest, which I would encourage you to be, and if I'm going to be honest with myself, then we can see in our lives countless ways that we have opposed other people. We have envied their gifts or possessions. We have spoken evil of others behind their backs. Have we not? We have not shown mercy or kindness to the needy. We have set bad examples for our children. We have condemned behaviors and then gone and practiced the exact same things that we condemn in secret. We have been proud and thought ourselves superior. We have been selfish and placed our rights, wants, priorities, and desires above everyone else. Even the best of us do these things and think these ways every day. God's judgments 
upon the world is simply him treating us exactly the way we typically treat him and other people. It is fair and it is deserved. If you're ever going to understand the gospel, you've got to face the bad news first. And the bad news is this. Deep within each one of us lies a propensity for evil. We need to consider the gravity and the weight of sin. Think of how mean and cruel even children can be to one another. At school and elsewhere. There's a novelist who's not living anymore, but his name was Somerset Maugham. And um, he wrote a novel called Of Human Bondage that I read some time ago. And uh, he tells a powerful story in that book to drive this point home. He talks about a nine-year-old boy. A nine-year-old boy named Philip Carey who enters a school in England called King's School. And he very soon discovers that this school is a house of torment. Um, Philip, Philip has what people used to call clubfoot. And his unusual foot, um, it fascinates the other boys. And it turns them very quickly into mimics. And on his second day of school... The other boys bring Philip into their game during recess, and the game is called Pig in the Middle. And you can imagine where this is going, right? Pig in the Middle turns out to be a playground game in which one boy roves in the center of the playground as all the other boys run across it. And if the rover catches one of the boys, then, of course, there's a new pig in the middle for the next round of the game. And, of course, Philip is made the pig at the start, and he can't catch anybody. He, he desperately tries, but his foot just doesn't work for a game like this. And worse, after watching Philip struggle for a while, one of his classmates gets the brilliant idea of mimicking him by clumping around the playground with just the right amount of awkwardness and quickness that he can both mock Philip and elude him at the same time. And pretty soon... Every boy is doing this and yelling at him. Second day, that night, he's mocked further. And I hesitate to even tell this part of the story. But three boys come into the dorm room and sneak next to his bed and hold him down and force Philip to show them his club foot so that they can look at it and say how beastly this is. And struck their fingers up and down it with a disgusted look on their face. And mom in his story says that Philip turns his face into his pillow, clamping down his teeth in order to contain his storming soul. Is not the Heidelberg Catechism accurate when it says that we are all born sinners, corrupt from conception on? We must consider the gravity of sin. There is a line of evil that runs through every human heart, including each of ours. And the judgment of a holy and righteous God is deserved. Make no mistake. Thirdly, we see that the judgment of God is purposeful. You know, you might want to ask yourself, why is this in the Bible? <laughs> you know, what is the purpose of God Showing all of this to John, and what is the purpose of all of this imagery about God's judgment? 
We all desperately need to see that God's judgment is righteous and that it is deserved. And listen, the reason that we need to see that is that we might be provoked to repent of our own rebellion against God, of our own sin, and run to Jesus Christ for pardon and for peace. You see, the people of the beast, you see there in verses 8 through 11, do not repent and give glory to God. John is explicit as the fifth and sixth bowls are poured out. They refuse, in other words, to see themselves rightly and to see God rightly. They persist in evil disobedience. And the bottom line is they are going to be destroyed and cast away from God's eternal light. And the question is very simple for each of us as we read and hear this passage. Will you repent? Will you see what you're really like with the eyes of faith? Will you hear the message of the scripture? And here's the message. Listen, God in his glory and mercy has made a way for people to escape their deserved judgment. God has made a way for each one of you and for me to experience the forgiveness and the pardon and the cleansing that all of us so deeply need. God has made a way to reform you, to reshape you from a God hater into a God lover, into the person that he initially made you to be. And God has done this for humanity because God is a God of love and mercy. He judges the world because he loves the world. And he also offers redemption and restoration because he loves the world. And he is offering you that now through the ministry and preaching of the gospel. You see, Jesus, the son of God, has taken that judgment on himself for us. That is why throughout Revelation, he's called the lamb, the lamb of God. Peter, in another book of the Bible, writes this, 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. You see, the purpose of all this judgment talk is for you to see and believe that the Son of God, Jesus, has fulfilled the righteous judgment on us by himself taking our place as man and in our place undergoing the judgment under which we should pass. And that's why Jesus came and lived with us as a man. That's what we call the gospel, the good news. The good news is that the judge himself has become the judged. Karl Barth, famous 20th century theologian, wrote it this way. Listen to this. The very heart of the atonement, that's a word for the work of Jesus. The very heart of the atonement is the over overcoming of sin. Sin in its character as the rebellion of man against God. And in its character as the ground of man's hopeless destiny in death. It was to fulfill this judgment on sin that the Son of God as man took our place as sinners. He fulfills it by treading the way of sinners to its bitter end in death, in destruction, in the limitless anguish of separation from God. We can say indeed that he fulfills this judgment by suffering the punishment which we have all brought on ourselves. What is the purpose of Revelation 15 and 16? The purpose of seeing the judgment of God is so that you might escape it. That you might escape it by trusting in Jesus Christ. By believing that out of love, Jesus, the perfect man, come down from heaven, has taken the judgment of all of us in his place, in our place, 
and given you freedom and forgiveness and through the Holy Spirit's ministry right now will continually work to transform us into children of light, having rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness. You see, you can't really get the bad news, or excuse me, the good news, if you don't get the bad news. And so in Revelation, the bad news from time to time is vivid. The bad news from time to time drives a stake into our very souls with the purpose of bringing us new life, with the purpose of bringing us the same resurrection that Jesus himself has experienced. And so the only response is to do the exact opposite of what the people that we read about in Revelation do. Don't harden your hearts and reject God and curse him in anger. No, run to Jesus who has made a way for forgiveness to come fully to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. Jesus has earned it for you and he offers it to you freely. Receive it by faith. Let's pray.